In the Lord this morning comes from that sermon we call the book of Hebrews. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given Even if an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he is promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only earth, but also the heaven. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks, by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, For indeed, our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors and in various ways by the prophets. And one of the first times we ever heard God was when Moses brought us to Sinai. We had never seen Sinai since none of our clans had left Egypt in 400 years. We had seen God's wonders, turning a river into blood, calling locusts to devour crops, sending hail to destroy the livestock, casting darkness upon the sun in the middle of the day. But we had never seen nor heard God. We'd been journeying for three months, and we had come to camp at the roots of the mountain, Moses had left us there as he drew near to Sinai, and we didn't know what to expect after all the terrible wonders we had witnessed in Egypt. Moses returned, telling us that God had spoken to him. God said, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. We answered Moses as one, saying, Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We were told to prepare for the coming of God when he would descend upon the mountain, not to come too close. Even our animals, for if any of us had, we would have to be put to death with stones or arrows. On the third day of our encampment, there at the roots of the mountain, Sinai, became cloaked in smoke and fire, and everything shook violently. Thunder and lightning poured out from the darkness, and the glory of the Lord brought terror into our hearts. 
We could not explain or understand the darkness and fire and tempest and trumpeting that came from Sinai. We gladly let Moses go in our stead because Sinai was too holy for us to approach. God spoke to us many times throughout history, but Sinai was the beginning of our story, and at that time, we only knew to fear the Lord. And so we too, today, here in this church building in San Angelo, Texas, may attempt to approach God in the same way, in fear. While we may not have a mountain to approach here in the middle of the Concho Valley, we might come in fear to the table of the Lord, to the throne of God. Now, there's a good kind of fear mentioned throughout Scripture. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, a theme crops up. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge. It shows up in wisdom literature like Job and Proverbs. It can be found in the prophets like Isaiah and Micah. It even appears in worship texts in the Psalms. Even more than this connection between fear of God and wisdom, there are numerous commands to fear God and keep his covenant. But that's not the kind of fear I'm talking about. I'm talking about a fear that approaches God like children genuinely afraid of a parent or a spouse genuinely afraid of his or her partner. There's a version of faith in God which approaches him in such a way There is a faith that comes to worship on any given Sunday out of a sense of obligation or fear of retribution. This sings to God not because it wants to, but because it has to. This faith is like a marriage in which one member of the couple is clearly dominant. Not a leader, but a tyrant. Not a partner, but a master. This is like a marriage in which the wife is afraid of her husband and so walks around him tenderly upon the shattered glass of the damage he has caused her. Or the husband who timidly approaches his wife for a request to go out and do something he loves at the risk of hearing her belittle him into a shadow of the man he once was. This faith is that of a child who obeys mom or dad not because it's a good thing to do and there are rewards for obedience, but who obeys because it's a technique for survival. Now, hear me clearly. I do not suggest God is this way towards us. No. I mean a faith that treats God like we are beaten down and terrified of him, coming to church not knowing whether our worship is acceptable, so we offer what we have in fear. I mean a faith that dreads any time in prayer throughout the week because even the suggestion of being in the presence of God drains us of energy and fills us with anxiety. This is a faith with a perception, a perception of God that he eagerly awaits my next mistake with lightning on his hands and terror on his heart. This is a perception of God marked by our own pain. For those who are or have ever been in abusive relationships, the metaphor of Jesus as the groom in the church of his bride isn't comforting, it's unsettling. For those whose parent or parents have hurt them deeply or are hurting them now, metaphors of God as father or mother make them recoil from contact with that God. We may recoil from contact with God here in this building in San Angelo in 2016, coming to God, yes, but only in fear as the only mountain we approach is covered in darkness and fire and lightning. But instead of fire and darkness and lightning and fear, 
the author of Hebrews tells his listeners, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. I don't know about you guys, but I don't hear the word festal all that often in everyday conversation. The first time I was reading this translation, I thought, isn't that what happens to a wound if you don't treat it? It festals. It's not all that common a word anymore, but luckily for us, it's not that complicated. It just means having to do with a party or celebration. It comes from the word feast. For me, a a good parallel to this kind of idea of a feast, uh, Jesus tells a parable in Luke 14. There's this important person, and he decides he's going to have a dinner party. He's going to have a feast. And so he sends out a servant of his, a messenger, to all of his important friends to invite them to this party. But all of his important friends have excuses. Sorry, man, I I just got married, and so I got to go home, take care of the wife. You know how it is. Ooh, I actually just went out and bought some land, and it's the middle of harvest season, so I I really have to go take care of that. I'm going to be pretty busy. Rain check on that party, bud. I have to Snapchat my friend in Jericho and then tweet what I think about this year's election. I think we're going to have another Caesar. (laughs) So the messenger returns to his master, and the master is appalled. And he tells the servant, okay, fine. Go out and invite these people instead. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, any outcasts you can find, bring them here. So the servant goes out, he invites these people, and all of them show up, and there's still room at this party. So the master sends out the servant once more and said, there's still room. Just go out in the street and proclaim it to anyone who is willing to listen. There's a party and they're invited. And everyone shows up. And at the city of the living God at Zion, there's still room at this party. It's filled with innumerable angels and there's still room. There's some pretty important people here too, the author of Hebrews tells us. The firstborn who are enrolled in heaven are here. That's pretty cool. They're out on the dance floor and one of them is rocking the chicken dance. And, you know, we know they're having fun. God is here, God the judge of all, and he doesn't judge the guests at this party as guilty, but as worthy of being here. The spirits of the righteous made perfect are over by the hors d'oeuvres. Fantastic. Oh, there's Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the one who invited us to this party on the mountain, right? There was an ice tub full of uh, water bottles earlier, but they've all turned to wine. We haven't come to a mountain of fire, of darkness, lightning, trumpeting, and fear, but to the city of the living God upon his holy mountain. Indeed, instead of fear, we are able to approach God in joy at this party in the New Jerusalem. I distinctly remember the first time that I worshiped God joyfully. I just made some new friends a few weeks before, and together, We'd walked to hell and back as we had grappled with our demons and discovered who we truly were and what we're worth. We had new names and bright faces. My name was this. I am a courageous, loving husband and a child of God. About 30 of our group went to church that Sunday and we worshiped together. We were done with fear and we approached the city of the living God that morning in triumph. 
I remember singing a song about Jesus as the Lamb of God, how we're his lambs and God is our shepherd. There's also this language of parenthood, of God as the Father and us as children. And I remember singing that song and tears were in my eyes and in that moment, free from fear, I raised up my arms to God and fully expected him to pick me up in his loving embrace. Before, I had come crawling to the roots of the mountain covered in fire. But now, I ran joyfully into a party filled with angels. This image up here, this is my friend Mike. Mike was one of many in our group who went with, worship, went with us to worship that morning, and he was one of many who got baptized that day. At this particular church, they don't have baptism robes like we do, where we've got a changing room, and you, know, you leave all your regular clothes there so they don't get wet. No, this church, they, uh, they give out shirts you can borrow that say, I'm going public. That's fantastic. And this is Mike going public. And two Wednesdays ago, on August 10th, my, my friend Mike truly did enter the city of the living God with his unexpected death. His life may have been surrounded by and maybe even ended in fear, in fire and darkness and a tempest. But now, Mike rejoices with God in the new Jerusalem. The prayer card they handed out at his funeral used a picture of his baptism, not this one, from a different angle, where he's wearing that shirt that says, I'm going public, and his arms here are raised in triumph. This is an image of someone entering the city of the living God in triumph. Because we don't celebrate a faith that comes before God fearful of what he may do to us because of our sins. But we celebrate a faith that runs to God joyfully. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says, do not refuse the one who is speaking. If they didn't escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns us from heaven? Even if we come to the city of God joyfully, it does come with the responsibility of answering that call in the first place. When God speaks, his voice shakes the earth. And here the Hebrews author remembers a promise God made to the prophet Haggai. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. God is going to shake all created things, this earth and this heaven, so that what cannot be shaken, the city of God, Zion, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth will remain. We don't have a new heaven and a new earth just yet, but we have already received a kingdom that can't be shaken. When God speaks, and I owe this image to Kevin, uh, we went and had coffee earlier this week, and he had this thought, when God speaks, it's a little bit like having a sifting bowl filled with rocks and sand. God is shaking out the sand, the shakable stuff, so what is unshakable remains. God has shaken away the created things just by speaking so that the unshakable kingdom remains. And so, we do not refuse him when he calls us to the new mountain. And since we're receiving an unshakable kingdom, we give thanks to God. This is our acceptable worship. When we approach God with a faith that spurs us to run to him joyfully, the form of our worship can matter less than our attitude. The what of our worship can matter less than the how.
We come with thanksgiving in reverence and awe and God deems our worship acceptable. We do not fear whether God will like what we bring, much like children who bring to their parents the pictures they've scribbled and colored and those pictures get put on the fridge. Those kids aren't scared that mommy or daddy won't like the rainbows and unicorns and helicopters and superheroes that they've drawn. They just give it away because they want to, because it brings them joy to see mommy and daddy smile. And our text today ends with this claim that God is indeed a consuming fire. The author of our book doesn't remove that language of fire that comes from the beginning of the text. He doesn't say that the fire goes away. God is a consuming fire for sure, but God is consuming the shakable things. We come to the new mountain with thanksgiving, not just in a couple of hours once a week in this thing we call church, but in every aspect of our lives, at work and at school, at home and in play. Certainly when we play, and man, can we come to God in our play. When we come to the new mountain with thanksgiving as acceptable worship, we do encounter a consuming fire. And this we can say in joy instead of in fear. Indeed, our God is a consuming fire. May our God consume the shakable parts of our lives and of this world so that all that remains is an unshakable kingdom and a life filled with thanksgiving instead of fear. May we continually approach the new mountain, the city of the living God, with thanksgiving filling our hearts. And so now, as we stand and sing, let us do so in thanksgiving, not because we must, out of fear, but because we can't keep that joy contained. Let's stand.